So Amy, I think I'm going to introduce a little culture to the podcast. I feel we need to up the game a little bit. So, you know, I want to introduce a little culture. Is that all right? Sure. Okay, here we go. Because, you know, I was uh, at one time I I played a minor role in junior high school on one of the plays. So, did you? Here it goes. To sell or not to sell? That is the orthodontic question. It's not Shakespeare, but it is the topic of today's podcast. And it is a good topic to talk about because. Um, not only is it uh, an evergreen topic, obviously there's transitions in and out of practices. So at some point, uh, most practices do look at selling, but there are more and more options for selling nowadays. Um, and for example, DSOs are here um, and they're here to stay. And so we do want to talk about them and the other transition options that they offer us. Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontists, the podcast that makes you the authority in orthodontics in your community. Get ready for insights on how to compete on expertise and trust against mail order and retail orthodontics. It's not always about the lowest fees. And now, from the People in Practice team, your hosts, Dr. Leon Klempner and Amy Epstein. Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontists. I'm Amy Epstein. I have 20 years of marketing, branding, and public relations experience, working with companies large and small on everything from branding and transition communications to digital lead generation campaigns. I'm joined by my dad, retired orthodontist, and co-founder and CEO of People and Practice. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into selling your practice, and we're really excited to have a financial expert, Brad Cuchero from McGill and Company, returning as our guest today. Brad is both a CPA and a certified financial planner and has been providing customized tax and business planning services exclusively for our profession since 2007. During the time, he's helped over 500 dentists and specialists across the country for financial independence, reduce stress, and create greater peace of mind. Brad's developed and directs McGill's Comprehensive Planning for Retirement Services. He graduated from the University of Iowa. He's got a bachelor's and master's degree of accountancy. Brad, on behalf of both of us and the entire orthodontic community, thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. You're welcome. And it's a privilege to be here, Leon and Amy. Um, I've enjoyed our last podcast and really excited about today's podcast. And hopefully we're able to provide some information that's incredibly valuable to the orthodontic profession as it's, we all know it's a very fast-changing uh, profession we're all in. That's for sure. Well, the reason why we invited you back again for a second time is because the first one that we did together was very well received. And every time we talk to you, um, even on our own, where we always come back with more information um, than we had before. So um, thank you again. So let me start, Brad, by asking you, how does an orthodontist know if they're financially ready to sell their practice, whether it's to a DSO or another individual uh, solo practice owner? That's a great question, Amy. It's interesting. A lot of times we'll have an orthodontist call us and say, Brad, I think I need to do something, but I don't know what. Or they'll call us and say something along the lines 
of, I think I'm ready to start a transition plan. And our question back to the orthodontist is, tell me a little bit more about that, or, or why do you feel that way? And about 99 times out of 100, when the doctor gets to the end of their spiel and they tell us what they're thinking, nowhere along the lines they've told us they've already looked at their ability to be able to retire and have enough money last through the age of 100. So that's typically our first question to doctors is, have you assessed your ability to retire and have all of your assets last through the age of 100? We actually tell our clients if they live past 100, we'll actually work for them for free at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> we're still waiting for the first orthodontist to live past 100, but that's our, our promise to the profession. Um, so, yeah, step one is to sit down with a financial advisor and do a year-by-year -year cash flow projection through age 100 along with asset values to make sure financially they can afford to sell. It's not like golf where there's mulligans. Once the mm -hmm. practice is sold and the cash flow machine's gone, there's no do-over. So we want to make, make sure that the ability to retire has been looked at, the models have been run, people are incredibly confident, which ultimately allows the orthodontist to have more options, more flexibility in terms of who they want to sell to, when do they want to sell, how do they want to sell, mm -hmm. things like that. So we typically start with the financial side, what a lot of people um, sometimes don't consider until it's too late is the emotional or the psychological side of retirement. So the financial mm -hmm. side is relatively straightforward. We build out financial models and tell them you can afford to sell or you can afford to sell in two years or four years or whatever the number may be. But once the doctor sells and they go from working 40, 50, 60 hours a week to not working at all or working part-time, they have a lot of extra time on their hands to fill. And some doctors, it's pretty simple. They can fill the time. They have a lot of hobbies, a lot of passions, volunteer, they teach, things like that. We've unfortunately had some other clients, the orthodontist that sold, didn't have any hobbies passions or interest outside of orthodontics and they struggle a little bit psychologically and emotionally transitioning in, into retirement. Hmm. So that's the other thing we recommend is people explore that with their spouse if they're married, uh, explore it with a coach just to make sure once they do pull the trigger down the road, uh, not financially not only are they stable, but psychologically, emotionally they feel good about where they're going. Mm-hmm. Do you find, Brad, that there are commonalities in terms of when people reach out? Like you said, it's like a feeling that people have. Um, so aside from that sort of spidey sense that maybe it's a time to look into this, are there other milestones or markers that our audience should look out for um, in terms of reaching out to someone like you to do this type of planning? Well, we, we always tell orthodontists, you need to start planning yesterday for your retirement, regardless if you're 28 years old or you're 68 years old. Um, and that way, when that feeling comes about, they already know what their plan is. Um, but for the orthodontists that haven't done that, 
and they get this feeling about they want to do something or think they need to do something, normally I see it happen um, in the late 50s, early 60s. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, I, I turned 58 this year. I'm thinking 60 is my number. Or, hey, I turned 63 this year. I'm thinking 65 is my number. Sometimes it can be more gender-specific. Um, a lot of times I see females want to retire a little bit earlier than males. I think they have, in my experience, they have more things to do post-orthodontics than males and mm-hmm. don't seem um, to struggle as much as the males do on, on retirement. But uh, we've seen everything across the board. Okay. All right. So that is really helpful. Go ahead, Dad. You yeah, want to ask a yeah, question? I, I'm just going to piggyback on that a little bit because I can speak from personal experience that um, the psychosocial aspect of retiring is a big deal. I did it for 40 years, and I was really concerned about it on both levels that you mentioned. Number one, I wanted to make sure that when I did sell my practice to my partner, that I could afford it, and you know I could make it to 100. Um, and number two, um, you know I was concerned that uh, giving up ortho, and um, what was I going to do? And, you know, if it wasn't for people in practice, I never would have left ortho because, you know, you can practice a couple days a week into, you know, now with aligners, you can do that well into your 80s or 90s. Um, So um, I think those are really uh, two significant points. And uh, if it wasn't for the fact that I had enough money, um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have made that jump. Because I didn't know uh, what people in practice was going to generate, and certainly not why why I did it. But you know, those the, those are really important areas. Uh, the other thing is, Amy and I have helped a lot of our clients make that transition, so we know firsthand. You know, we we have experience in helping them uh, to do that from a from a practice transition standpoint, um, as well as communication standpoint. Um, but my, my question to you, Brad, is most of the transitions that we're seeing are occurring to DSOs. They seem to be uh, the buyers these days and, and, and are looking to buy practices. Could you tell me some of the trends you're seeing with DSOs right now? Absolutely. There, there's no other time than now in terms of how hot the the DSO acquisition market is. Uh, Interest rates at all-time lows, um, private equity looking to generate high returns in the dental slash ortho profession. Uh, They've had a a great run with generating 15 to 20 percent returns with low risk given how lucrative uh, your profession has been. So with coronavirus last year, everyone kind of held their breath and second half of the year we saw a record level of sales in terms of the dental profession selling to DSOs. Um, We think the penetration is north of 20 percent already in terms of the DSO market. Uh, We don't have you know the full statistics on that but based on what we're seeing and hearing we think in the next year or two those statistics will be published. Um, I was down at an orthodontic resident program a few weeks ago, talking to them about what they're doing, where they're going, et cetera, and um, they told me about their offers they've received from DSOs, and 
the DSOs are offering a lot of money to these young doctors coming out of school. That's tough for them to pass up when they have record levels of student loans. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, they're able to recruit doctors and, and get them in practice. How long they are going to stay there remains to be seen. But, mm-hmm. you know, those are things we're seeing, and it's a, two or three times a week I get a call from a client saying, hey, so-and-so approached me about selling to uh, corporate. I just mm-hmm. filled a call last night at 5.15. Um, this gentleman had talked to a DSO about eight months ago, said, sorry, thank you for the offer. We're going to hold tight. And the DSO came back and have increased the offer dramatically where the orthodontist is now thinking about selling again. So uh, they're here to stay. They're very aggressive in terms of uh, acquiring practices. Typically, their offers are substantially more than selling the conventional route to another orthodontist. They use the metric called EBITDA mm-hmm. and use a multiple of EBITDA, typically somewhere in the four to seven range. So it's tough for orthodontists to turn down the big dollars uh, as they approach retirement. You know, Brad, um, I get calls all the time from guys my age that are, you know, winding down their practice. They're at the end of their career. And, you know, we're a marketing company. And they question whether they need to really involve us in their practice at this stage of their career because they're probably going to just sell it. How important is it to keep the practice going and keep the numbers up in terms of the sale of a practice? It's unbelievably important and unbelievably lucrative. Um, When someone looks at a practice to buy it, whether it's an individual or a DSO, they like to see practices that are growing. And they, if a practice is growing, they're willing to pay more. If a practice is declining, then they're a little bit more hesitant and willing to pay less. Mm -hmm. So as doctors approach retirement, uh, they want that practice to be at the top of its game. And we tell doctors for every additional dollar of profit that they're able to generate, that typically adds about 4 to $7 to the valuation. Mm-hmm. So to give you an example, during the last year of an orthodontist practice, orthodontist owning the building or owning the practice, if he's able or she's able to increase their profit by $100,000, that's likely going to add $400,000 to $700,000 of profit mm. uh, or value to the practice when it's sold. Mm-hmm. So we all we want doctors to step on the gas pedal and continue to improve their practice, market their practice, slowly grow their practice. Um, so when they do go to sell, it's as valuable as it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you get calls, you know, a couple times a week um, with orthodontists who have been approached by a DSO or a broker. What is the next step there when that happens? What should an orthodontist do if they get one of these calls? Yeah, so there's there's really two things. Um, one kind of goes back to our first question is, hey, can we even afford personally to entertain this idea? So uh, let's assume the answer is yes, because if the answer is no, 
then they should just politely decline the offer. So assuming an orthodontist is financially able to sell and they get that offer, the next step is to bring in a transition expert consultant to help them with the offer. Is it a lucrative offer or are they getting lowballed? Are there going to be a lot of holdbacks? Are there a lot of contingencies? How much of the offer is cash up front versus how much is going to be in equity in the DSO? Um, a lot of times we see offers come in, and these are more from potential brokers than DSO, saying, hey, we can get you X amount from this DSO. And then you get down into the fine print, and there's so many holdbacks and contingencies, and once you dumb it all down, it isn't that great of an offer. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you guys went to school to be dentist slash orthodontist, and we didn't go to business school to be transition experts, and that's where we need someone to come in who deals with private equity and DSOs all day, every day, that knows the ins and outs of it to make sure you're well represented. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point because, you know, DSOs, they're corporate and corporate in nature. And, you know, they have legal teams typically. And, you know, we're mom and pop orthos. And, um, you know, we, we, we know we need to get an attorney, but, you know, sometimes I would assume there are terms and conditions that DSOs build in that could be buried somewhere in the details and could have a, a, a significant impact on the deal. Could you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the devil's in the details. And um, just to give you an example of a holdback I saw in a DSO, the agreement said if you hit this certain collection amount, you get 100% of the holdback. If you don't hit this collection amount, you get 0% of the holdback. Mm -hmm. And like, well, if we miss it by $1, we lose out on hundreds of thousands of holdback. That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. right? So we had to negotiate, hey, if if we hit 90% of the collection goal, we get 90% of the holdback. If we hit 80% of the collection goal, we get 80% of the holdback, et cetera. So there's a lot of little details behind the scenes like that that the transition slash legal team can really make sure the orthodontist is protected. Um on, on the back end. You know, Brad, on our podcast, we always ask our listeners if they want to ask a question to our guest. And so we do have a question today. So let's run that now. Hey, Brad, this is Dr. Justin Wedding. My practice is in Owensboro, Kentucky. My question is, how do the potential tax increases affect an orthodontist decision to sell their practice? Thank you. Yeah, that's a hot topic right now. Uh, under the proposed Biden tax plan, they are looking to increase capital gain tax rates from 20% up to 39.6% on people making more than a million dollars. So when an orthodontist goes to sell his or her practice, a lot of times they're going to have more than a million dollars on their tax return that particular year, which could potentially almost double the tax rate on the amount of income over that threshold. So we're getting a lot of calls uh, from doctors who are within a few years of retirement saying, hey, should I just go ahead and sell now and lock in the 20% capital gains tax rate 
rather than waiting three or four years and potentially paying a lot more mm. in federal income taxes. So right now what I've been telling the doctors that ask that question is I, I don't like making business decisions based on speculative and potential tax changes. Um, we like making business decisions based on what's in the tax law now. Mm-hmm. And we're we're super aware of what could happen later this year or early next year, but it's not in the law yet. Um, historically, what we've recommended to orthodontists is when they sell, the goal is to time the closing of the sale so it occurs on January the 1st. And what that does is it pushes the income out to the new tax year and takes advantage of all the lower parts of the tax system or lower parts of the tax brackets. Mm -hmm. So what may happen this year, which remains to be seen, is if an orthodontist is looking to sell this year or early next year, we may tell that orthodontist, well, rather than selling on January 1st of next year, let's go ahead and pull the trigger December 31st of this year, assuming the tax laws haven't changed. And that mm-hmm. way, we're able to lock in those lower capital gain tax rates. Um, for doctors that are two, three, four, five years away, they are still better off economically, owning the practice, making the money, and unfortunately paying a little bit more tax when they sell mm-hmm. compared to selling early and giving up that income stream. Mm-hmm. So I would just hate to see someone sell their practice on the speculation that they might have to pay more tax. And really, economically, that's not in their best interest. That would be more of an emotional or psychological decision. And that's what we're here to do is to try to help people not not make those emotional or psychological decisions that could have a negative impact on their economics. Yeah. And, and Brad, does it does it make a difference if when you're selling the practice from a tax perspective, if you get a lump sum for the practice or whether it's paid out over a number of years? That's a very interesting point, Leon. Um, historically, the lump sum typically gives the orthodontist both the best tax result, and then it also eliminates default risk of the buyer not paying on a promissory note. Um, and the way interest rates are right now, buyers of orthodontic practices can go to the bank and get loans typically between 3 and 4%. So the buyer is more likely to go to the bank and get the money rather than do seller financing because the seller typically wants more than a 3 to 4% note. Um, so how is that going to change potentially in the future if this new tax law goes into effect? And we foresee more installment sales being a viable option. If a doctor can get a a chunk of money up front and then take a note back and spread some of that capital gain or goodwill out into the future, um, we see more and more doctors looking at that option. Uh, historically, there's very few that do that, but that's something we're definitely going to look at and consider down the road. That's great, Brad. This is such good information for our listeners to have. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, and, you know, we'd like to have you yet again because things are changing rapidly, as you said, very at the very top of the show. 
Um, so we'd like to have you back to continue the discussion and see how things are progressing. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I'd love to come back down the road, and it's a, an honor and privilege every time you reach out to us and invite us. And if there's anything we can do to support the orthodontic profession or, or the two of you, uh, feel free to let us know, and we're happy to help. Thanks, Brad. We appreciate that. And if our listeners want to learn more and uh, and maybe reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Absolutely. They can go to our website, mcgillhillgroup.com, and uh, can email in to us or call us. We actually have a person answering the phone, so they won't be <laughs> routed to um, you know, a recording. So call in mm-hmm. and ask for myself. If I'm unavailable, they can ask for Janet Blair. She's our we call her our treatment coordinator to try to <laughs> resonate with the ortho profession, and we'll be happy to talk to talk to you at any time. Great. Thanks again, Brad. We will talk to you soon. Thank you, Leon. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Brad. You can subscribe or download other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate you telling a colleague. For more information about people in practice, you can sign up for our free marketing newsletter on our website at pplpractice.com. Thank you again for listening. And if you're at the end of your career thinking about selling and want to ramp up your value, shoot me an email so we can discuss it. Uh, You can reach me at leon at pplpractice.com. And remember, for forward-thinking orthos, it's never been a better time to be an orthodontist. We are right now, believe it or not, in the golden age. Take advantage of it. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us on the Survival Guide for Orthodontists, where we help your practice grow within a massively disrupted industry. Subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on social media. Find us online at the survival guide for orthodontists.com.